Welcome back to another episode of Bed Letter. I'm your host, Christian Ashleman, and this is the podcast where we chat a little bit about our psychohuman brains, a little bit about our loony human behavior, and a lot about how it all fits together. So it looks like we are on episode 18. Um, kudos to those of you who have been out there tagging along. I appreciate all of you and the time that you have been kind enough to give to me listening to these episodes. I really appreciate it. So today uh, we're going to do things a little bit different. We're going to kind of, which I know I kind of almost say this uh, darn near every week at this point, but um, I'm going to, we're going to be going through some uh, articles that were published in the uh American Psychological Association that were uh, pretty interesting, and I figured, hey, let's just do a quick episode on them. Why not? A little different format, same same topic, different format. It's kind of what I've been toying with is different formats. So you know, if you if you find if there's a certain format that you enjoy, be sure to let me know. But anyway, so the first topic is uh, an article posted on the American Psychological Association. And the title of this topic is Answer Quickly to be Believed. Answer Quickly to be Believed. This was published in the American Psychological Association on February 16th, 2021, so very recently. Um, it was written by Jim Silwa, but the research was done by Ignacio Ziano and Deming Wang. So a couple different uh, players here. So here's the article starts off by saying when people pause before replying to a question even for just a few seconds their answers are perceived to be less sincere and credible than if they had replied immediately according to research published by the American Psychological Association and the longer the hesitation the less sincere their response appears Evaluating other people's sincerity is a ubiquitous and important part of social interactions said lead author Ignacio Ziano PhD of Genoble Ecole de Management. He said, he goes on to say, our research shows that response speed is an important cue on which people base their sincerity inferences. The research was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Very interesting. So basically what they're saying is, um, just off the first few paragraphs here, basically they're saying uh, the, the speed at which somebody takes to respond to you is directly correlated to the sincerity with which somebody accepts what you're saying, essentially, right? So uh, the paragraph goes on to say that researchers conducted a series of experiments involving more than 7,500 individuals from the United States, the United Kingdom, and France. Participants either listened to an audio snippet, viewed a video, or read an account of a person responding to a simple question. For example, did they like a cake a friend made or had, had they stolen money from work? Um, in each scenario, the response time varied from immediate to a 10-second delay. Participants then rated the sincerity of the response on a sliding scale. All right, what was that example again? It says, did they like a cake a friend made or had they stolen money from work? Okay, these are just example questions that they're given, right? And then they see the delay. There's a delay on the response. They measure the the. Um, the response to that delay, essentially, after that. All right, it goes on to say, Across all 14 experiments, participants consistently rated delayed responses at less sincere, regardless of the question, whether it was harmless, uh, let's see, whether it was a harmless one about cake or a more serious one about committing a crime. So, interesting. Basically, regardless of what the topic was, across every question, if the more delayed the response, the less sincere 
someone is perceived as being interesting i I mean i guess i could see that when you're in a situation and you're demanding an answer um regardless of what it is you might think that somebody's lying to you if they're sitting there thinking about it because they might be thinking telling the truth of lying of of fibbing bending the truth and often that's kind of a tell but that being said it's not always a you know direct tell because People could be calculating who knows what, but this is, it's definitely interesting. But the article then goes on, a few conditions reduce this effect the researchers found. For example, if the answer was considered socially undesirable, such as saying, no, I don't like it, when a friend asks if you like their cake, response speed did not seem to matter much. The answer was considered sincere, whether it was fast or slow. The researchers also found that if people thought a slower response was due to mental effort, for instance, having to think back if you had stolen candy 10 years ago, response speed had a smaller effect. Okay, that's basically what I was just saying. For instance, having to think back if you had stolen candy 10 years ago, right? So like you're having to recall files, something that is um, something that involves you having to do some manual labor in your mind. Um, that is what I was just saying a second ago. So that's that's interesting. And then right before that, it mentioned something that is perceived as it would be bad if you said no like if somebody says if you're if your friend makes a cake and you say if they ask if you like it you're like you don't want to say no it's terrible right like regardless of how long it takes to reply apparently that is perceived as it, it doesn't matter how long it takes it's perceived as the same according to the research so anyway, the findings have wide implications according to Ziano. Whenever people are interacting, they're judging each other's sincerity. These results can be applied to a wide range of interactions, going from workplace chit-chat to couples and friends bickering. He said, Further in job interviews and in court hearings and trials, people are often tasked with judgments of sincerity. Here, too, response speed could play a part. Okay. So maybe he's going to get to some tips and tricks, right? For example, he said, imagine a hiring manager asking two job candidates named Ann and Barb whether they really know the programming language, JavaScript, as they claim. Ann says yes immediately, while Barb replies yes after three seconds. Our results suggest that in this situation, the hiring manager is more likely to believe Ann than Barb and therefore is more likely to hire Ann, said Ziano. In general, whenever there is a response that requires an answer, such as a job interview, delayed responses can be perceived as less sincere. So that is interesting. Basically, if you're going into a job interview, you got even if it's a, even if it's a fib, even if it's a bent truth. I mean, I'm not endorsing you to go do that, but I'm just saying, replying immediately is almost better than waiting and telling the truth. Is what they're saying in this paragraph. It's like their uh, their little tip here. Another, it goes on to say though, another area where response time may be important is jury reactions to testimony in court. Uh, okay, this here we go. It would be unfair for the responder, such as a crime suspect, in the response delay, if the response delay was misattributed to thought suppression or answer fabrication when it was in fact caused by different factors, such as simply being distracted or thoughtful, said Ziano. The final experiment found that explicitly instructing participants to ignore delayed response reduced, but did not completely remove, the effect of delayed response on judgment of sincerity or guilt. Interesting. Okay, so so if they told them that basically this is exactly what the experiment was about, then it, was, it had some effect, but it didn't completely remove it still, even when they know what they're looking for. 
So the final paragraph goes on and it says, nevertheless, our research shows that on the whole, our fast response seems to be perceived as more sincere, while a response that is delayed for even a couple of seconds may be considered a slow lie, said Ziano. Fascinating. A slow lie. A slow lie. Okay. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's things like this that are interesting because it's almost like you're, you're uncovering little things about your brain that you almost can't help, right? You're uncovering these little bits and pieces, these little puzzle pieces that are like, oh, by the way, your brain automatically <clears throat> profiles somebody's sincerity when uh, they reply or don't reply to a question that you ask after a certain amount of time. Right, like, like it's almost—it's almost like subconscious. You don't even have a say over it, and so it's kind of cool to learn about this. But at the same time, it's like—I mean, I guess it's a good thing to notice, sure, but it's definitely interesting because you're just learning—you're—you're you're learning more about humanity as a whole. You're learning more about yourself and and tendencies, and <clears throat> more importantly, you're learning more about patterns. Right? Patterns are huge, especially in psychology. So. Very interesting, very interesting little article. It wasn't super long, but it was uh, again published February sixteenth, just a few days ago. Little little research uh, uh, completed by again Ignacio Zianu and Deming Wang. So moving into the second uh, article, right? So there was one more I wanted to go into real quick. It was published in the APA on February tenth, twenty twenty one. And it was written by uh, – it was actually written back in January, though. And it was written by Hannah Calkins, and it was titled Online Therapy is Here to Stay. And this one is a little longer, but it's really interesting. It basically goes a lot into what what type of effect um, COVID-19 has had on online therapy or just on, 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 on therapy in general, right? So the title is Online Therapy is Here to Stay. COVID-19 dramatically impacted psychology practice. What does the future of telepsychology hold? Starts off by saying, With telehealth usage rates skyrocketing, experts say resolving concerns around privacy, security, access to care, and payments for providers will be critical as many psychologists adjust to providing care remotely during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Resolving those concerns will be critical to making sure psychologists can continue offering telehealth. As demand for mental health services grows, particularly services offered virtually. Yeah, I, I can only imagine right now it's the therapy, I'm sure, has just gone through the roof online, right? And, and, and I would dare say there's potentially some people who might actually be experiencing more therapy, like more clients. I would guess. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure. I would, I would surmise. <clears throat> Several studies have already proven telepsychology's effectiveness, and research from Janine Turner, PhD, a professor of communication, culture, and technology at Georgetown University who has followed telehealth's growth over the past two decades, has shown that both patients and providers who use telehealth generally view favorably. Okay. While the telehealth and infrastructure of telehealth has been available since the mid-1990s, Turner says the healthcare industry would never have embraced telehealth fully without a status quo ending event like a pandemic. That makes sense. That's one thing that I think is going to be really good about COVID-19 is it's going to kind of put to – hopefully put to rest some some bad habits we have with not utilizing uh, our ability to do you know video chat and meet 
with each other remotely and, and do so much work from home and things like that. Anyway, last year, within weeks, the system had to absorb all the challenges of wide-scale adoption, says Turner. Now it's taken off and there will be no going back. All right, well, so the, this article is kind of broken into a several different chunks. So the first one is called Assessing the Outcomes. The COVID-19 pandemic has basically forced most healthcare providers to see patients remotely, but psychologists have unique concerns and questions about the virtual delivery of their services. For instance, how might technology impact the therapeutic alliance? And mental health care, by definition, has a strong emotional dimension. Can that really be honored online? This, I think, is the most important part um, of the entire thing, or at least one of the most important parts, because I feel like there's a lot of... Uh, important things that happen when it comes to body language, when when it comes to you sitting face-to-face with a therapist. I think there's a lot missed when you're just doing telehealth, tele, you know, just doing like Zoom meetings and stuff. Um, I mean, I, I know this for a fact is, I mean, I work in the court system and we, a lot of our, our court is completed online right now in WebEx and things like that. And it's it's not quite the same the the there isn't quite the same personal feel there isn't quite the same personal touch it's definitely a little different and especially in the realm of therapy i think that would be a very concerning piece of the puzzle the article goes on it says it appears that it can according to ashley battistini phd and assistant professor in the department of counseling educational psychology and research at the university of, of memphis what is her name Ashley Battistini. Okay, Ashley Battistini. I haven't pre-read any like these either of these articles, by the way. I mean, I I kind of uh, went over the first few paragraphs of each chunk of of both articles, but I I didn't like go through the whole thing on purpose because I kind of wanted my initial thoughts to be uh, what the the format of the episode was. So, Battistini. Battistini and her colleagues recently published a large meta-analytic study that compared clinical interventions and assessments delivered via tele- video conferencing with those delivered in person. Overall, they found that in-person and virtual interventions produced similar outcomes. Likewise, assessments produced similar opinions across modalities, she says. Likewise, assessments produced similar opinions across modalities. Uh, okay modalities <laughs> All right, anyway it says it was important for us to compare virtual delivery to in-person delivery not not and not to baseline yeah okay no i mean it makes sense to I me mean, you're that's what else are you comparing it to virtual to in-person battistini says we want to see how much physical presence in the same room mattered like i said this has got to be one of the most important metrics the result was not a surprise to battistini and her team she says their conclusions were in line with the existing literature on telepsychology, including a 2016 meta-analysis at the same, by the same team that focused on correctional and forensic telepsychology. Battistini and her colleagues did uncover some interesting surprise in a new, one interesting surprise in a new study. Women appear to have better outcomes following virtual interventions than in-person interventions, something that merits further research, she says. Women appear to have better outcomes following virtual interventions than in-person interventions. So for some reason, women have better outcomes from online psychology therapy than in-person therapy. That is very interesting. Uh, You know, obviously not everybody, 
but this is just on 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 average, I guess you could say. Very interesting. I wonder how that even. I wonder why that even would be, or if that's even. I mean, it doesn't link any research here in the article, but that's that's fascinating. Battistini hopes that this study will help assuage lingering concerns the psychologists may have about the impact of virtual delivery on their services. I think telepsychology is here to stay, and it's important for us to adapt, not resist. Yeah, it's definitely here to stay. That I do concur with. Absolutely. So this is the next the next section of the article goes on. It says ensuring quality, security, and privacy. Battistini does, does have a word of caution for those hailing telepsychology as a key to improving access to care. While her team study has a compelling conclusion, it also revealed some significant limitations in the existing literature on telepsychology, namely inconsistent quality across studies. What we know is certainly promising, but we need more scientifically rigorous studies and a better understanding of what works for whom. Yeah, I mean, when you're doing online therapy, I guess there's only so many things that you can really, so many angles you can approach um, when you're not actually in the physical presence of the psychologist. That being said, I imagine it wouldn't be that limiting. So anyway, she says, she emphasizes the importance of improving all patients' access to the internet, yeah, and to provide spaces which are both crucial for the success of virtual interventions or assessments. That'd probably be the biggest thing. Is there's probably going to be some patients or people or, or older folks or whoever else that are going to have trouble with internet, connecting to meetings, understanding what's going on there. I know it is always issues. It is always issues when your business moves to online meetings. There's always issues with people joining those meetings. Always, always. But anyway, she goes on. For vulnerable or undeserved clients, this task may prove more difficult. One possibility psychologists might consider is establishing partnerships with local community organizations or other spaces that offer private, centralized, and clean spaces for clients to attend sessions, such as libraries, medical centers, community colleges, or courthouse, Battistini says. But concerns about the privacy and security of telepsychology are not limited to the patient's side of the screen. Psychologists need to be aware of the general privacy and security risks, such as the possibility of data breaches, take steps to minimize them. According to Battistini, there are two components managing these risks. Okay, I mean, this is this is all just obvious, right? Yeah, you're going to have HIPAA. You're going to have... You're gonna have uh, yeah, first psychologists must do their research, make sure make certain that the platforms they're using are compliant with the health insurance problem. Portability and Accountability Act. That's what HIPAA stands for. Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. HIPAA. HIPAA, HIPAA, HIPAA. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, there you go. H-I-P-A-A. Particularly while HIPAA's security role and and privacy role. I mean, with anything in in the realm of psychology or therapy, you have to have HIPAA, right? So they'd have to, whatever video platform they used, to do these these uh, therapy sessions would have to be uh, encrypted or locked down in some some way. It'd have to be uh, protected, uh, password protected, multi- multiple layers of that and stuff like that, which isn't hard. I mean, things like WebEx and other things offer things like that. So um, anyway, it says there are a variety of platforms to choose, but providers should not assume that what they are using is HIPAA compliant. Oh, okay, that was 
super helpful. The second way to strengthen your security is through informed consent. Okay, Battistini recommends that psychologists use a thorough, clear consent form that both informs patients about psychological or potential risks and lets them know how these risks are being managed. For example, psychologists should tell the, their patients about any technical controls they're using to protect privacy, such as encryption, firewalls, antivirus, and malware. They should also implement to inform patients about policies and procedures concerning the safe storage, transfer, and disposal of patient data. Yeah, I mean, consent forms is a given. Yeah, I mean, the rest of this, this is all just privacy stuff. Worrying about people overhearing the meetings and things like that. But the next the 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 next chunk of the article is uh, telehealth coverage and reimbursement, and it says it's likely that many practicing psychologists will continue using telepsychology even after the public health crisis is passed. That is also a given. Having come to value telepsychology's flexibility, psychologists may want to use it more than they did before the pandemic. The key to making sure they is that oh the key will be making sure they can get paid for it. <laughs> I, I feel like you you have the, the possibility of, of having such a bigger client base, right? And the ability to have more flexible time schedules. She goes on to say, States have different laws and mandates regarding telepsychology coverage, and not every state requires insurers to reimburse these kinds of services at parity with in-person services. During normal times, she says, but with pandemic, many states have mandated and many insurers have provided expanded telehealth coverage and policies so that has been very helpful for psychologists and their patients. There have been a few bumps, however. For example, Galetti says that some insurers require all telehealth providers, not just mental health providers, to use proprietary platforms such as Teladoc, which often require additional and credentialing and fees. Okay, yeah, that's <clears throat> that's a big one. I feel like the biggest issue facing a lot of uh, a lot of companies or a lot of professions that use teleconferencing a lot now the biggest one of the biggest thing especially when their profession has to do with interacting with just the general public uh, i feel like one of the biggest things to overcome is just the people's general knowledge of how to use that tech right how to use the the website or whatever it is that you're using to meet on those 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 meetings, I know ninety percent of the time the people who are joining uh, WebEx court hearings um, for what I do as a job, they have no idea what they're doing, and they can never seem to follow the instructions. And th and that's not a, a negative comment on them. That's just the reality of what it is. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if we if they have bad instructions. I don't know. I don't know what. But there always seems to be problems. I mean, not, not half the time there you have attorneys and people taking calling people having them speak out of the microphone of their phone on speakerphone into the microphone of their laptop or something crazy like that so you're going you're you're basically speaker hopping it's insanity it's crazy but uh anyway she goes on uh oh you know what and that is that's pretty fascinating in and of itself is this this that's going to be one of the biggest problems also is that for online psychology, you're going to have lots of different states. You could have a client base that has a client. You have a client in Texas and Utah and Idaho and New York and Georgia and then a whole bunch of them in Tennessee. And, and you know, who, knew, who knows? And there's different – each of those places has different laws when it comes to psychology, you know, therapeutic practice. 
And so there'd have to be some kind of clause that would allow for, um, I don't know, some some kind of some kind of uh, clause that would allow for people to practice psychology and practice their their trade across state lines with with way more ease, even if it's only allowed via teleconferencing. Like if they want to do it in person, they'd have to get licensure from the state or something further licensure from the state. But uh, you know, that, just another another hurdle, another thing that would have to be crossed. But um, it is interesting. The state lines is definitely going to be a hurdle. So anyway, the the last one talks goes into a little bit further um, on on crossing state lines. Is uh, the first bit of it starts off by saying the COVID nineteen pandemic and increasing confidence in telepsychology's quality and security have dramatically pushed the trajectory of telepsychology forward but there was one more development shaping the horizon interstate practice under the agreement called the psychology interjurisdictional compact Ooh, maybe this is what i was talking about SIPACT. SIPACT is a fast-growing interstate licensing compact that enables psychologists in the participating compact states to practice remotely across state lines. It also lets them practice in person in compact states on a temporary... Oh, see, now that's nice. It lets them practice in person. Okay, there you go. Created by an association of state and provincial psychology and licensing. Okay, so it's the ASPPB, um, some commission, right? They they enacted this, became operational. The SIPACT agreement became operational in 2020. Okay, there you go. That is actually fascinating, and that's super helpful. That's actually very timely that they got that done. Also, fantastic that they can meet in person. Not that they always would, but you never know. It says 15 states have enacted SIPAC legislation, with several more on track to do so, according to Janet Orwig. Very nice. Very nice. Doesn't list the states. Doesn't list the states, but I'm sure you can find it really easy. SIPAC. Um... I'm sure it, it, it's probably very simple. Here, look. I, I wonder if... Let's see. SIPACT is currently active in nine states, is what this is saying. This might be a little behind, though. This website that I'm looking at, but... Oh, with five more. Okay. So, yeah, this one's a little behind what I'm going to say, but it says not, the nine states are, uh, th this one's confirming, is Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Illinois, uh, Oklahoma, Missouri, Nebraska, Nevada, and Utah. So lots of western and midwestern states, uh, with five more pending, including Washington, D.C. Um, very interesting. Very interesting and very helpful. If you live in those states, definitely be sure you are taking advantage of it. If it's something that your insurance is offering, if it's something that you can afford, if it's something that you're interested in, it's definitely probably a very helpful thing. Um, anyway, it goes on to end the article by saying, Since we began taking applications in July, there's no way to know whether the pandemic caused a spike in interest, or Rig says. However, as of mid-October, we received 1,967 applications. Wow. Orwig hopes that SIPAC continues to increase how and where patients access mental health care. 
We are at the start of a new and exciting time in the profession of psychology where a strong foundation exists to both provide telepsychological services and provide public protection. She says, being able to get care anywhere is our new reality. Oh, what a great way to end the article. I really liked that. That is fantastic and very true and very useful to be reminded of, I think, every now and then, right? Especially with, with that's that's one thing that I think COVID is kind of forced us to look at, sticking our head and pointed us right at it, is the fact that we I, we are so much more linked up than we've ever been. And then, and it's only becoming more and more. And so it's time to take full advantage of that, right? Whenever it's necessary. And this is a perfect example of that through this online therapy. So anyway, um, I think I'm going to wrap up the episode right there. So I hope you guys thought those two uh, articles were interesting. If not, then, uh, you know, there you go. But uh, yeah, uh, just a couple of articles I found on APA. I was kind of scrolling through there. I thought they were kind of interesting. Um, answer quickly to be believed. Answer slowly to be to, to have people think that you're lying to them. There you go. A little quick tip for when you go to an interview. Just say something immediately. Something. Try to tell the truth. Pray and hope that it's the truth. It better be the truth. But if it's not, you know, that's on you. But say something faster than saying anything slower. And uh, take advantage of online therapy if you can, if you have it. If it's an option for you, do it. But I'm going to wrap up the episode there. Uh, if you've enjoyed listening, be sure to follow Bedletter on whatever platform you prefer, where I'm all over the place on a whole bunch of different platforms. Uh, you can check out my blog as well as a bunch of other projects that I work on over at my website at www.cashleman.com. That's C-A-S-H-L-I-M-A-N.com. And if you are just super inclined, I actually do have a Patreon where I have details about other services I offer in regards to editing, um, tutoring, and mentoring, and things like that. Mostly are mostly about English and, and writing and stuff, but uh, there's other things on there as well, so be, be sure to go check that out if that's something you're interested in or feel like supporting the show. Um, but yeah, all this info can be found on my website, cashelman.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really, really, really appreciate it, guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and you have an awesome week, and I'll see you next time on Bed Letter.